You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer, and I want to thank all of you for joining us for this episode. We're going to be talking about the role of measurable residual disease, understanding test results, and challenges with insurance coverage and other financial issues. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Wolf, who is a clinical professor in the Department of Medicine and director of the myeloma program at the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of California in San Francisco. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Sure, Ken. Good to be here. So just to start out with basics, what is measurable residual disease? Well, thanks for asking. Measurable residual disease, or MRD for short, used to be called minimal residual disease, suggesting that this is sort of what's left after we've gotten rid of the bulk of the disease. It's most applicable in the setting of cancers where we can reduce them substantially and sometimes cure them. These would be oftentimes cancers of the blood, such as leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, where we have excellent therapies that can reduce the cancer in a way that we can no longer measure it by the conventional measures. So in myeloma, for example, for decades we've been measuring myeloma in the blood by measuring the proteins that these cancer cells produce, the so-called paraproteins. We measure that with a protein electrophoresis test that gives us something called an M-spike. We measure it with light chain measurement where we get a kappa or lambda measurement. Or we can measure it just with an IgG, IgA, IgM, or IgD, for example, measure of the disease. And over the decades, we've totally used those measures. Easy to get at, just take a little bit of blood. In the case of acute myelogenous leukemia or acute lymphoid leukemia, we used to just look under the microscope and count the number of malignant cells that were left. And now we have flow technologies that allow us to measure some residual disease. But again, as our therapies get better, and we start to look at the bone marrow in an ALL or AML, and we see nothing, and we do flow and we see nothing, it would be nice to know if there's still something left there. I mean, there must be because many of these patients relapse. In the case of myeloma, let's say all of your blood parameters are normal, and you look under the microscope and you see nothing, and you do flow in a conventional way, and you see nothing. We call that complete remission, which in some ways is really not the correct term because all these patients relapse. So what do we mean by complete? The ability to measure residual disease beyond what we used to measure is what we call MRD. And we do that either with flow technologies or with next generation sequencing. So Jeff, I'd like to ask you almost from a 60,000 foot point of view about studying MRD in different blood cancers. So let me ask you, can we and how do we study MRD in AML? And is that information then actionable? I would say in AML, it's very actionable. Firstly, it can be done in proof of blood more and more. In fact, a recent article in Blood Advances is looking at another way of looking at MRD post transplant. Frankly, in the acute leukemias, 
the goal has to be zero measurable residual disease because uh, any amount means relapse. So I think measuring it is mandatory, both in AML and EML. Large cell lymphoma. I believe the same thing. That is, uh, re residual measurable disease in lymphoma means the patient's going to relapse. And so the treatment should be designed to get to zero. If you still have residual disease, say after initial therapy for diffuse large B cell, I, I think that patient merits more therapy. All right. So again, highly actionable. And then obviously in myeloma, as we're going to talk about in detail, it sounds like it certainly is important and actionable. I believe it is what the argument would be against using it. And that is, if we're not curing people, I guess the argument could be, what does it matter? You'll find out sooner or later that the patient relapses. If you can pick it up earlier, you're not treating the people with therapy that's not working. That's why myeloma becomes a more arguable situation because the people opposed to it can say, well, you have to do a bone marrow, which is painful, they'll say, and you don't know that you're really giving them more life by just picking it up sooner. But in the case of acute leukemias, no question, there's residual disease, they're going to relapse, you better treat. I think there's less argument there, and if you can do it in peripheral blood, it becomes a no-brainer. So I want to share an anecdote, because a lot of medicine is anecdote, you know, what we see over the years. And I do it sort of as a, a launching point for another question. And I have a patient I've known for many years who's now in her 90s. When I treated her for CML years ago, all we had is interferon. And I, I've actually shared this on this podcast before. She moved away. She was sort of lost to follow up. She stopped her interferon. And when she came back to me, literally uh, maybe seven years later, she was already in her mid to late 80s. And doing PCR for the BCR ABLE, we found the CML clone at very, very low amounts off treatment for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. So the question, and she was fine and her CBC was fine. So I do want to get your thoughts and impression. How often, you know, before we knew about MRD and could measure it, how often do you get a sense that people have had some residual disease and that they can cohabitate with it? That's a wonderful question, and certainly we have situations like that. In the case of your patient where you were using PCR to measure BCR able, we have used that for decades now in a way of measuring residual disease for CML, right? So how often do we see patients who cohabitate? Well, in the world of myeloma, which is the world I mostly live in, we have something called smoldering myeloma that in most cases predates active myeloma. And in many cases, with aggressive treatment, we can get patients back to a smoldering state where we actually get them off of therapy and they sit there with a little bit of measurable paraprotein and they just don't relapse for years. And that cohabitation is probably a function of our immune systems coming to grips with the cancer, maybe getting a, a little bit of an upper hand after the therapy the patient's had. Maybe we've knocked out some of the more malignant subclones and left the patient just with a smoldering clone again. And we have many, many patients like that, Ken. And in the case of CML, patients back in sort of a chronic phase now and can live in chronic phase for a long time. So there are some cancers, though, AML, for example, ALL. I don't think people cohabitate with those very well. So yeah, yeah. residual disease in those cases usually means the patient's going to relapse. And I know you're going to get to this question later, but if we identify residual disease using these MRD measurements, I think it's worthy of treatment in some situations because any residual disease usually leads to disaster. In the case of myeloma, a little bit of residual disease might be okay. CML, a little bit of residual disease would be okay. But as someone in the myeloma field talking with patients about MRD, 
Firstly, how do you explain to them the testing you're doing and then also the meaning of the results? You know, obviously, if there's no MRD, it's very exciting. How do you counsel patients, however, where there is MRD? Another great question, Ken. Oh, thank you. The world of myeloma, experts all, is really split maybe evenly at this stage between those who believe that MRD can be used for clinical decision-making and those who don't think that we're quite there. There's no question in the world of MRD in myeloma when we do clinical studies and we compare one group to another, say treatment A to treatment B, it's really important to look at how many patients achieve MRD zero. In this case, I'm talking about next-generation sequencing where we can actually measure down to one malignant cell in a million. That's a foregone conclusion. Everybody in the field agrees that it should be used in that way. Prognostically, we know it's important. Those who achieve an MRD zero at 10 to the minus six do better than those who have measurable MRD. The question is, how do you tell a patient that you're going to be using this and what does it mean? If it was simply a blood test, like it is in some other malignancies, you wouldn't have to explain it. It would be no different than saying, we're going to measure how much of your disease is left. In the case of myeloma, you actually have to get a bone marrow in order to assess the MRD to make it meaningful. So you have to explain to a patient why they have to go through another bone marrow procedure, even though they've been told they're in complete remission. And so what you have to tell a patient, and in different institutions do this better than others, it has to do with whether the doctors believe in it. In our institution, we all believe an MRD is important. Our patients sort of buy into it. They even call my nurse and say, I think it's time for my MRD bone marrow. But in other institutions where docs don't necessarily believe in it, patients are reluctant. But in our institution, patients understand that a complete remission is not a complete remission. They aren't all made the same, and that those who get to MRD zero are going to do better than those who don't. And in some situations, you're going to want to know if you've gotten to zero. For example, with high-risk myeloma, more and more we know that those people with FISH results that predict high-risk early relapse, early death, that if we can get to MRD zero and keep them there, they'll do as well as somebody with a standard risk. So in that case, it's pretty easy to tell a patient, you've got bad FISH, you've got bad mutations. Yeah. We need to get you to zero. We need to keep you there. Some of them want a marrow every month, and then we tend to do it every three. In other cases, I had a woman yesterday, you talk about anecdotes, young woman, 34 years old with myeloma. She chose not to do a bone marrow transplant. She was afraid of second malignancies. She was afraid of losing her hair. She was afraid of the toxicities. But she understood that if she could get MRD zero without a transplant, she'd do just as well as if she got MRD zero with a transplant. So she chose to go without a transplant. Her last bone marrow was 85 in a million. That was in January. We kept her on the regimen she's on, a triplet with carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. We did another marrow, and she was again 85. And I said, well, we could kind of sit there. And she said, uh-uh, doc, you promised me zero. I want to change therapy right now, and I want to get to zero, in which case I switched her to a DERA tumumab-based uh, regimen to try to get her to zero. I think the future is using MRD now. If I told you that it could be done in your blood, you wouldn't hesitate. I mean, every doc in the world would use MRD in patients who achieved, you know, where the M spike becomes zero. They'd start ordering MRD in the blood, and they'd base clinical decisions on it, just like you base a clinical decision on a rising paraprotein. If the spike's 0.2 and two months later it's 1.0, you're not going to continue the same therapy. You're going to change therapy. Right, exactly. You do the same thing with MRD. Somebody's down to MRD 20 in a million, and the next time you do it, it's 520 in a million, they're going to relapse. You change therapy. So I think it really has to do with the fact that it's a bone marrow procedure. 
I'll editorialize for a minute, but just to say, you know, again, when patients know they're going to get important information, it is a procedure that's tolerable. I mean, and hopefully one where we're doing a good job with either sedation or local anesthesia. Yep, exactly. But let me ask you along those lines, for someone who does not get down to uh, MRD zero with a first line of therapy, does having reached that with a second or third line equal having achieved it with the first? The answer is likely yes. We haven't done those studies, but we have shown that MRD zero, even in a relapsed patient, the patient does better than they do even relapse if they don't get MRD zero. Good question, though. If you've got somebody, say, post-transplant, still has measurable residual disease, do you just put them on lenalidomide as maintenance, or do you look for something more aggressive? Well, we're trying to answer that. Dr. Costa, in his master trial, is looking at every step in care, post-induction therapy, post-transplant, post-maintenance, whether there's a point where you can get MRD zero and even stop therapy not just with one measurement, but with at least two or three. So you show persistence of the MRD zero. It's not enough to just get there on one occasion. But a number of the studies that we're looking at right now are going to answer the question you just asked. Very exciting. It is. I mean, if we can get to zero and keep someone zero, maybe they don't need 10 years of maintenance chemotherapy with the cost and the side effects. Right. Absolutely. So of all the ways we're going to use MRD in the future, one important part would be when do you stop therapy? We have no idea today when to stop maintenance therapy, how to manage high-risk people, as I mentioned before. Do you even need a transplant? Is it possible that we can get somebody like this woman I talked about yesterday, MRD zero and not need a transplant, with all the side effects that come with transplant, including the little talked about second malignancies that we see down the road with using an alkylating agent like melphalan? I think there'll be a lot of ways we can use it. It's a good opportunity, both for me and for the listeners, to ask the following, which is, how do you actually look for MRD? Does looking for one patient's MRD involve a different approach and looking at a different patient's MRD? Are they customized per patient? Is it fairly generic looking for MRD? Tell us a little bit how it's done. So it actually is individualized when we do next generation sequencing. We need to find an initial specimen, say a bone marrow that was done at the time of diagnosis, and actually scrape off the slides to get the plasma cells and the DNA so that a DNA sequence can be identified that's very specific for that patient's disease. And then later, when they're in a remission, send another bone marrow And in that case, they use the DNA sequence that they've already identified to probe and find, you know, that needle in the haystack, that one cell in a million. Now, that's one technology. Another technology, flow cytometry, in which multiple different antibodies are used that target different proteins on the surface of the plasma cell, you don't need an initial specimen for that. So it's easier in that sense, but it's a harder test to do. The cells tend to disintegrate over time. So we send ours, for example, to Rochester, Minnesota, the Mayo Clinic. I imagine some of those plasma cells are dying on the way to Minnesota, especially in the winter when it takes a little longer. And so for individual hospitals to set up what we call Euroflow developed in Europe, it's a little harder to make that work for you. And at best, they're getting down to maybe one in a hundred thousand, not one in a million. But there are a few cases where you can't get that original specimen or where the DNA sequence can't be identified. And then we certainly do uh, neuroflow in those situations. But yes, it is fairly specific when you're measuring it uh, in terms of uh, next generation sequencing. Let me ask you, if I was talking to another expert who absolutely did not believe in MRD myeloma, what would they say about it? 
They would say that we haven't done the studies yet to prove that we can use it clinically. They would say, I certainly believe in it in terms of uh, phase three studies where we're comparing drug A to drug B or treatment A to treatment B. I think we should be looking at depth of response and depth of response means MRD measurement. But in terms of day-to-day managing patient, I don't think you've proven to me, Jeff, that identifying somebody whose MRD is rising by doing a couple or three bone marrows, that I can treat them sooner than I can if I just wait for it to show up in their blood. That is, I don't think any harm is done waiting for the patient and protein to go up from undetectable to 0.5 or 1.0, and I'll treat them then. I don't think bone damage has happened. I don't think other damage has happened. I don't believe they're going to say that you're going to get better control if you treat it sooner with less disease. And they're right in that sense that we haven't proven it yet. I just, in, in the group, the, you know, the 50%, I think, who believe that treating it earlier, we can get it under control better, that treating it earlier probably prevents some bone destruction that we don't see, even on a PET scan, that I think rising proteins means increasing numbers of plasma cells. Increasing numbers of malignant plasma cells means more bone destruction, even at a level you can't measure or see, and I'd like to treat somebody sooner. And picking up sooner means I'm not treating them with an inadequate therapy for those months. That is, if you pick it up six months earlier or nine months earlier, that means you've got somebody on maintenance therapy or triplet therapy for an extra nine months, and it's not working. The disease is growing all the time you've got it on it. Yeah, you can close your eyes and believe that the patient's in a complete remission, but I can tell you they're not. That's the argument. And firstly, thank you. I think it's always hard to look at the other side, and you did it very, very well. Thank you. Yeah. You know, many years ago, Larry Einhorn gave the plenary speech at ASCO, and he talked about the five myths of oncology. And I actually met him a few years ago, and I said, that was such a wonderful speech, and I'm trying to remember all five myths. I was at that lecture. I think I can remember three of them. (laughs) I think the first myth, in my mind, is that a complete remission is really a complete remission. And in the world of myeloma or in the world of leukemia, lymphoma, or even in the world of solid tumors, all right, let's go to a world that I don't know very well, but let's just talk about pancreatic cancer. Patient has surgery, chemotherapy, and you, you don't see a thing on PET scan or CT scan. They're in a complete remission, right? What's the chance of them relapsing, right? Or are they? No, they're not. Yeah, that's the point is that we call things complete when it's not complete. Right. And we've persisted in the world of myeloma where we have these definitions. We have a very good partial response, a near CR, a CR, a stringent CR, a molecular CR. We call them all CRs, right? I mean, in my mind, the only CR is a cure. Yeah, yeah, which is still our goal, even in, you know, times that we don't expect it. But let me ask you about one of his myths was that more is better. And there was more drugs or higher dose drugs. And so let me ask you about that in terms of myeloma, especially in your work and in your group's work. But there's combinations now of obviously it's not two, it's not three drugs, it's possibly four drugs, monoclonals, et cetera. Does it appear in myeloma, just from your experience, that more is better in terms of getting MRD zero? Another good question, Ken. So is more better? Well, in the world of cancer therapy, we, and Larry was right, we tend to do more and more and more. That is, more cycles, more drugs. If you know, if, if we have three that work and we have a fourth that, that works, we add it. And then we have to go back and do our studies of four versus three. Or In the world of myeloma, certainly the autologous transplant should be questioned now. That is, do we really need to add that? We have done some studies in the world of myeloma. For example, we did 
I'm trying to remember the name of the study, where we added four drugs compared to three. We added an alkylator, cytoxin, to uh, RBD, I think, and we showed that it didn't add much. It just added some toxicity. So there are times when we do the study. We've never done the study in maintenance, you know, in myeloma. That is, how many years of it do you need? We haven't really answered that question, and, and that's why I think MRD can help with those kinds of questions is more better. And I, I think answer it quicker. So in, in phase three trials, comparing three versus four drugs, early measures of MRD, I think, will tell you which arm's going to win. But, yeah, more is better up to a point, I think. Yeah. Let me ask on the other side. It always interests me in the sense, you know, you take two patients you know, or a group of patients who obtain a complete remission, let's say in myeloma, and let's say that they're both at very low MRD or close to zero or zero for that matter. Do you have a sense? I mean, what are the predictors within that? Do we know anything about the, again, host factors, immune response, or where do you think the science is going? What are the things you're excited about as an investigator? Well, we don't have the answer to many of the aspects of that question you asked. I mean, we do know that since we're talking about MRD today, I'll start with MRD. We know that the deeper the MRD, the better. I mean, we've known before this that before we had MRD, that complete remission patients did better than partial remission patients. So we do know depth is better. In terms of immune, we can't measure it at this point. That is, I have no way of telling you that patient A has a better anti-myeloma immune system than patient B. Yeah. There's no way I can predict, except if we look back at the original bone marrow and some of the fish mutations, or in the case of ALL or AML or lymphoma, there are certain predictors for bad outcomes, right, like double or triple hit disease and lymphoma. You know they're going to do worse even if they achieve the same depth. So the goal in those cases should be MRD zero again. And in some cases, like some of the diffuse large beetle, you can measure it in peripheral blood, which is quite helpful. But I think we don't have a way of looking, say, today at a patient's bone marrow and saying they've got what it takes to be cured. Yeah. Only time will tell us. Sure. Let me ask a few practical questions. One is about patients treated in a community setting. When you're seeing now patients for second or third opinions and your experience with community oncology, are those patients getting MRD tested? And if they're not both for the patients and for oncologists like myself, how do we get this done for our patients? I think it depends on where you are in the country, for example, or where you are in the world. But where you are in the country, we have uh, here in Northern California a great relationship with all the community oncologists and hematologists, and we share many of those myeloma patients. That perhaps they've come here for their transplant, and we continue to see them to co-manage them. We often become the primaries for the ALLs and AMLs anyway because they're so difficult to treat in the community. So in those situations, generally the docs in the community will just say, uh, you want to do the MRD and we'll bring them here and our nurse practitioners will do the bone marrow and we'll measure it. So we're available for that situation all the time to do the marrows. There are some in the community who like doing it and know where to send it. There are some uh, at Kaiser even who believe in it because they talk to us, I guess, and they trained with us, and so they measured on their Kaiser patients. I think that the academic centers they have a responsibility to teach the community, to work with the community. I was in private practice for 25 years before coming back to UCSF, so I really understand the world out there. And these guys, women, are treating you know breast cancer and lung cancer and colon cancer, and they'll see a few myelomas and a few large B cell here and there. And we want them to call us on our cell phones and say, you know, I need a little bit of advice here. 
we're always available. And in terms of measuring MRD, we're happy to participate and, and help with that as we teach the community that we think it's important. Obviously, there are other academic institutions in the country that don't believe in it. The community doesn't believe in it, and they don't have to ask where to get it done. And the other thing I want to ask, insurance coverage, is that a problem, and is there financial toxicity? It's not a huge toxicity. It's more and more the insurance companies are paying for it. Medicare is paying for it now. And if you do it by flow, it's generally the institution pays and then bills the insurance, so it's not restricted. We have found that over time, certainly the company that does it has been very fair to the patients and not balance billed the patient. But I think more and more it's being accepted. And again, the case is that if it leads to stopping certain therapy, we're saving money. If it leads to stopping maintenance, we're saving money. If it leads to fewer months of a certain regimen that's not working, although we're moving on to something else that could be just as expensive, we save money. But I think it's a way of measuring disease. And, and in the world of cancer, that you can't treat without measuring what you're doing. And I'm just saying that once you get to complete remission and some of these disorders, whether it's lymphoma or it's myeloma or it's ALL or AML, you've got to keep measuring. It's all about measuring. And let me ask you, in terms of resources, for our patients who are inquisitive and want to learn more, any resources that you would recommend Our websites? Certainly, I'm sure the Leukemia Society uh, you know, has a website that answers some of those questions. <laughs> no question about that. And then the two large myeloma foundations, the IMF and the MMRF, are the places to go for information like that. And then you know, there are a number of really great articles out there that can help you just look up MRD. This is Dr. Ken Miller. Again, I'm a medical oncologist, hematologist, and also an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you uh, for listening to this incredibly interesting and informative episode. I also want to take a minute to particularly thank Dr. Jeffrey Wolf, who's a clinical professor in the Department of Medicine, director of the myeloma program at UCSF. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Ken. It was a delight. For all of our listeners, if you have questions or if you want to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. I also want to encourage healthcare professionals to participate in some of our continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, and you can visit lls.org CE. Finally, I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on future episodes. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.